Okay. So this morning we're starting in Esther chapter 8 and verse 15. And let's open with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the things that it contains that we can learn about you, learn about your plan and how you work uh, in human history. And we just pray that as we study your, your word that it'll It'll work as change in our hearts that will understand you better, grow closer to you in our relationship, learn to trust you better. And we just pray these things that you'll bless our time now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we will start reading um, in chapter 8, verse 15, and we will read through chapter 9, verse 19. And in chapter 9, we can skip verses 7, 8, and 9 because they're just names. So when you get to the names in verses 7, 8, and 9, whoever's there, just skip on to verse 10. So okay. Now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Marie? Oh. I start in 8.15, for us. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yes, yeah. you did say that. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar, on the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Xerxes' province, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them Fear of them fell on every nationality. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace, and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all the enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and they did what they pleased to those who came to them. Okay, verse 10. Verse okay. You can read 6. Oh, 6. Okay. Okay. I thought Cheryl read that. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed. Okay, now we can skip to verse 10. Okay. You want me to read verse 10? No, you're good. Nope, you're good. For 10 sons of Haman oh. and the sons of Hamadassah the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. The number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. That pleases the king, Esther answers, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also. Let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded it should be done so. 
and an edict was issued in Susa, and Haman's ten sons were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on anyone. We're going through nineteen. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews were the, who were in the king's province also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This was done on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made it a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and the 14th days of the month. They rested on the 15th day of the month, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. This explains why the rural Jews who live in villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is a holiday when they send gifts to one another. Okay, so uh, last week just in reviewing the first part of chapter 8, um, King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes is his uh, Greek name, he had uh, executed Haman, and he gave all of Haman's estate to Queen Esther, and then Queen Esther had Mordecai uh, put in charge of it. So he was kind of the steward in charge of uh, that estate. Um, the king also uh, elevated Mordecai and gave him the signet ring that, had, that he had earlier given to Haman and took it away from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. So Mordecai became really the uh, prime administrator of the Persian kingdom. Uh, but that did not solve the problem of this edict that was out there for the annihilation of the Jews. And so Esther went back in before the king. She fell before him weeping and, and uh, asked him uh, on behalf of her people, the Jews, to see if he could revoke Haman's edict. And that's where the problem was, is that an edict issued uh, by the Persian kingdom could not be revoked. By himself. But yes. So uh, the king did say, now, now I executed Haman. I gave his uh, estate to you. I've done that much. Now, yes, you've still got a problem, and I'm going to just delegate it to you, to Esther and Mordecai. You take the signet ring. You figure out what you want to do, whatever seems best to you, sign it and send it out. And so... Um, he let Mordecai solve the problem. And what Mordecai did was he sent out an edict that gave the Jews the right to assemble on that same day uh, that the, their enemies were supposed to annihilate them, that they could assemble to defend themselves and to kill their enemies. <coughs> so instead of one party just attacking the other defenseless party, they both were armed and able to, they were able to defend themselves. And so that's uh, where we left off last time. It's kind of a definition of a one-day war. It's a pretty much a one-day, yeah, all-out war. Uh, well, it also seems, at first, it seemed like I was thinking it was just the government that was going to go out on this order. But really, it's all the enemies of the Jews all right. over the country. Yes. Um, so it's a lot broader than just the government. Yes, it was an, the entire empire. Whoever it seems very similar to like the Rwandan issues, mm -hmm. you know, you have the Mitsis and the Tutsis, like just all of a sudden your neighbor, you, oh, hey, I get to kill you today. 
Yeah, yeah. It's just, it was a approved genocide from one day. Yeah. In the 13th month, um, excuse me, the 12th, <laughs> the 12th month, the 13th day of the 12th month. There's not 13 months. It makes, so. it makes you thankful for living yeah. you know, in an era of peace, yeah. you know. Right. Like what could they have also done? Yeah. yeah. That's what. Uh, that's possible, right? But this, but this gave them the right to defend themselves. So, and that's where we left off last week. So starting this today, this morning, in verse fifteen of chapter eight. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. For the Jews there was light and gladness and joy and honor. And in each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land became Jews for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. So the first thing we see is Mordecai is honored here. Uh, the king uh, himself gives him royal robes and it appears that the king had his attendants bring out the robes and put them on Mordecai in his presence and then Mordecai went out from the king with these robes on. Um, it mentions blue and white. Uh, some of the commentaries say it could have been more like lavender or purplish, a light purple and, and white. Um, but uh, he had those uh, those colors on, and then they had another uh, robe of purple that went over that, plus a large golden crown. And these things are all signs of royalty that the king uh, put on Mordecai. Now the word crown here is different than the the word crown that was used for Vashti, and then again for Esther. Remember, the king ordered Vashti to come out with her crown, and then later when he picked Esther, they put a crown on her head. Well, this is a different word. So maybe the, I was thinking maybe the queens had something like a tiara or something a little more feminine, and, and he had some big hulking thing on his head. Uh, Built his neck muscles. <laughs> yeah, yeah, build up his neck muscles. Um, some of the commentaries said the word could be translated as turban. I think there's some old pictures of... Um, Persian royalty and, and even Egyptian royalty, they, they didn't wear crowns like we think of, the, like the British royalty. They had turbans that were decorated, and, and that's what, what they wore. Um, and so he was, had all these signs of royalty, the clothing put on him. Let's turn to Daniel chapter 5. We have another example of this in the case of Daniel. Daniel chapter 5, and would someone like to read verse 29 for us? Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Okay, so we have the same thing happening here to Daniel. The royal robe, uh, a golden necklace, which was a sign of, of his... Uh, royalty and, and honor in that case. Uh, 
Now, remember back in chapter 6, the uh, king had asked Haman, you know, how does the king go about honoring someone he wants to honor? And mm -hmm. Haman assumed it was him. And so he had listed certain things that he thought that the king should do. All of these are go beyond that, beyond what Haman had wanted for himself. Um, and what they show us is that Mordecai really was highly esteemed in the sight of the king. And he was uh, essentially promoted to be the second ruler over the kingdom. Let's turn to chapter 10. So I'd like to read the last verse, chapter 10, verse 3. For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and in favor with his many kinsmen, one who sought the good of his people, and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. Okay, he was second only to King Ahasuerus. Now, one of the things I think that was interesting here is how rapidly this occurred. So let's go back and, and look. Mordecai, excuse me, Haman issued his decree back in chapter 3 for the annihilation of the Jews. Mordecai immediately put on sackcloth and ashes because the decree was issued in Susa. So as soon as it was written, it went out throughout the capital city. Mordecai put on sackcloth and ashes. He went to the king's gate and... and stayed outside wailing and weeping. And this, if you remember, we had a, um, oh, uh, Queen Esther had sent um, one of her, it was one of the king's eunuchs, went back and forth carrying messages between her and Mordecai. And that's where you know, Mordecai basically said, you need to go into the king and do something about this. And she decided that she was gonna do that. Now that all happened on, on one day. And then she said, okay, now uh, pray for me yeah, for three days, and then I'll go into the king on the third day. So they had another couple, three days of prayer. She went to the king and invited her and, excuse me, invited the king and Haman to a banquet that very day, at which she invited them back the next day when she said, it's evil Haman, and he was executed. So we're talking... Five days, this whole, this whole thing, and then, you know, even then, while uh, Haman was executed, and the king then elevated Mordecai to this high position, um, so it's it's less than a week that all this happened. Mordecai went from uh, sackcloth and ashes to being the prince of Persia, and it occurred to me that there's there's a verse that I forgot to look up when it talks about God raising us from ashes to be princes in the Old Testament somewhere. Um, do you know who was elevated more quickly than that? Joseph. He was in prison, <clears throat> interpreted the king's dream, and was immediately appointed second in command of the kingdom under Pharaoh. So, uh, you know, when God wants to act, he, he acts quickly. He takes the person from the very lowest end of society and makes them a ruler over the nation. Uh, in one day, in one week, it can go very quickly. So back when Mordecai was in sackcloth, we were told that the city had been in confusion and all the Jews were in mourning. And so what happened to them? Well, 
Our verse here says, uh, verse 15, the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. Um, you know, and, and this was this was more than just the Jews. This was the entire city. And I think what it indicates, Haman was a very vile and, and uh, uh, hated overlord. They were glad to see him gone. You know, they didn't like having him rule over them. And so they were rejoicing that we had a, a righteous man like Mordecai now was in charge. Let's look at a couple of Proverbs. Let's turn to Proverbs chapter 11. So really they had quite a time to prepare because it's been, Mordecai was in, in that position quite a while before that 12th month, 13th day. There will, right, there will be eight months. Eight months. About almost eight months, yeah. So they had a lot of time prepared their defenses and their strategies. Yep. Their weapons. Pro okay. Proverbs chapter 11. Does someone like to read verse 10 for us? When the righteous prospereth, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Okay. That describes exactly <coughs> what happened here. Uh, the city rejoiced. They shouted with joy. And then let's turn in Proverbs chapter 29. And verse 2. When the righteous thrive, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, the people groan. Okay, so they groaned under Haman. Because he was a wicked man and ruled over the city. And now they're rejoicing because Haman is gone. So the people were glad about that. The Jews had even more to be glad about. Because... Their mortal enemy had been second in command in the kingdom, and he was bent on destroying them. And now, all of a sudden, a Jew, one of their own, was in that position. Their enemy was gone, and he was trying to help them. He was going to do everything he could to help them. Um, well, plus, when you got somebody in, that's in a head, you know, in charge of it, you got to watch every step around you because if they're happy, then. You know, everything's going their way, then they're happy. If something goes wrong, all of a sudden they're mad. Yeah, yeah. We've we've heard stories. Well, well, don't shoot the messenger. The reason we say that is because that's what they did. <laughs> you bring bad news to the king, and you're dead. Yeah. Well, and then so. even the last verse, where it, Mordecai is credited with with being good to the Jews and the whole nation. You know, so right. he's a fair and just person. Not yes. just, you know, his interest group. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't going to just, I mean, he would take care of the Jews, but he did not only favor the Jews. He was not going to uh, terrify all the other groups. Um, I, working in a school, I appreciate a principal who doesn't have favorites. Yeah. is fair and treats everyone, you know. Yeah. I was Yeah. At this point, you know, there's all this joy and gladness for the Jews, and I'm thinking, oh, God heard their prayers. And remember again, this is God is not mentioned in this book. You know, you can't teach it without mentioning God, but He's He's certainly there. Even Esther's request. Right. It didn't say prayer. Fasting. It just go yeah. fast, it right? It implies prayer. Yes. Cheryl, do you know the makeup of Susa in terms of Jewish population to non-Jewish population? 
No, I don't. Um, when the Jews were deported, they were deported to Babylon, not to Susa. So, in the time. There was, yeah, there was about, I think, after Persia captured Babylon, the, the Jews, I think, began to spread out. So they were in Babylon for 70 years. They may have done some spreading, but I think it was like, I, this might be 40 years or so after Babylon fell. It's just that the number of 75,000 that were slain, I'm thinking, that's a significant number throughout, yeah. not through, in Susa itself. Susa was, what, right. 500? Right. But in the entire empire, 75,000 slain on one day. Yeah. We'll, we'll look at some of those numbers. Because that's, yeah, because I, I agree with you. It's, it's uh, that's a big number. Yeah. Um, anyways, back to the this, this celebration here. Um, you know, it, it looks like the the author couldn't figure out which word he wanted to use here, so he put all of them in. For the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. Um, the word light uh, kind of represents hope for the future rather than darkness. Um, let's look at Psalm 97. You see this, an example of this, what it means to have light. Psalm 97, someone like to read verses uh, 10 through 12 for us. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, where he guards the lives of his faithful and delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Through 12, please. Light is shed upon the righteous, the joy in the upright of heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Okay, so this talks about God preserving his people, uh, rescuing them, he delivers them, and it says light is sown. So that's an, another example where we see light is, is, you know, you can look ahead and see light. There's, there's hope. Yeah. You know, we talk about the light at the end of the tunnel, you know. It's kind of how we use that expression. Um, well, and even uh, the message last week from Ben, Keeping an eternal perspective in our lives. Yeah. Looking for the hope that's set before us. Right. Okay, we also see uh, in this verse, gladness and joy. And that phrase will be repeated in the middle of the next verse, gladness and joy. Uh, and it talks about honor. Uh, it comes from the fact that, you know, the Jews were considered as expendable under Haman. They were horrible people. We want to get rid of them. They were dishonored, disgraced. Now, under Mordecai, they are being treated with special honor. So they are also honored. They've gone from dishonor to an honored position. Um, it also tells us that this joy was not just in Susa throughout the entire, all the provinces. Uh, the Jews celebrated with feasts and they had a holiday. Um, at this time. Now, one of the things it says is all this new, newfound prestige and um, power for the Jews frightened a lot of the other peoples. Um, they knew it was coming. They decided, we do not want to be on the list of enemies. 
because if we're on that list, we're going to die. So they feared that, so they wanted to be friends with the Jews. They wanted to ally themselves with the Jews. Um, and it's, it tells us here that it, uh, it says, many among the peoples of the land became Jews. And so this kind of can vary from people who superficially kind of take on the Jewish customs to blend in with the Jewish people to those who realize that, you know, this is an act of the Jewish God <laughs> and we want to belong to him. You know, so you had true proselytes, those who feared God because of what he was doing for his people. Um, so you've got this kind of a variety of what this term can mean here. Let's look at Zechariah and chapter 8. Zechariah chapter 8. Someone like to read verses 22 and 23 for us. Okay, so this specifically is a prophecy of the uh, millennial kingdom when Israel will be in the ascendancy. Uh, but we see that going on here. You know, the, the Jews are favored people. They can see that right now, and so they, they want to attach themselves to the Jews and, and, and be protected by that and to share in that favor. So, we have spent six chapters covering about one week's worth of activity. Now, between chapters 8 and 9, we have about an eight-month break. And as we've been going through these different passages, we see you know, the, the exact chronology is not that all, always that important. Events are listed in order, but we... We don't know the chronology. Again, this whole book of Esther, um, when we go back to Ezra between chapters 6 and 7, there's a 58-year break. And that's where this story fits in. So uh, now we've got about an eighth, almost an eight-month break before we get to the 12th month and the 13th day. So chapter 9, again, verses 1 and 2. Now in the 12th month, that is the month Adar on the 13th day, when the king's command and edict were about to be executed, on the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary, so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the peoples. So the this day finally comes, twelfth uh, month, thirteenth day, and the year was 473 BC. Just the information, if you can fit that in, if if you're good at remembering dates, <laughs> that's the year 473 BC. <coughs> so this is the day that all the enemies of the Jews had thought, okay, we're going to annihilate the Jews. We can get rid of them, get them out of our hair. But the tables were turned. 
So who did the turning? God. God did, right. Again, he's not mentioned here. He just says this is what happened. Um, and so the Jews gained mastery over all those who hated them. Um, and there, there always will be people who hate the Jews. Because, you know, the world lies in the power of the evil one. Satan hates the Jews because they're the people from whom the Messiah comes. Satan hates them, and his influence causes others in, in addition to hate them. So this tells us that the Jews and the cities joined together in armed groups. They went out throughout the cities, killing all their enemies. It says the enemies fled in fear. They could not join together uh, to withstand the Jews. Now this fear itself could be uh, a supernatural type of fear because we've, if you go back through Jewish history, God does put fear into the hearts of their enemies. Let's look at a couple examples. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23, and someone would like to read verse 27 for us. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. Okay. So when the enemies are in fear, when they're in terror, when they're in confusion, they can't put together a coordinated defense. They're just... They're running in terror, and, and they can't defend themselves. Let's go on one more. Joshua chapter 2. This is a story of Rahab. And she hides the spies. Joshua chapter 2. Would someone like to read verses 8 through 11 for us? Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. Go to 11. Yes, also. When we heard it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God of heaven above and on earth beneath. Okay. So she's one that recognized that, you know, this wasn't just normal a big army coming, but this was God be, that was doing this. And Rahab became a believer. She is in the line of Christ. Um, because of that, she recognized that God was behind it. It was a supernatural fear. Okay, back to Esther, chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. So even all the princes of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and those who were doing the king's business, assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Indeed, Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai became greater and greater. So he was not just appointed uh, to be the administrator, but um, 
his power grew as he as he uh, worked in that position. So this is he's been basically administrator for eight months now, um, and he's apparently doing a very good job. <laughs> and uh, sometimes they talk about a, a a new king or a new ruler having to kind of consolidate power. They get into an office, but then they have to work in that office for a while before they really uh, are solid there, and he's achieved that. So this talks about all the rulers and the princes. So we, we talked about the people were afraid, the enemies were afraid, but now we have the rulers and the princes. Um, they're going to support the Jews. So they have, on this day, they have two edicts. One was from Haman to annihilate the Jews. The other one was from Mordecai to help the Jews defend themselves and kill their enemies. So if you ignored the edict from Haman, what's Haman going to do to you? <laughs> He's dead. <laughs> you can ignore Haman's edict. Mordecai, on the other hand, was powerful. You could not ignore his edict. So these guys, you know, whether they believed in God or the Jews or whatever, they made a very astute <laughs> political decision. We're going to go with Mordecai. Um, so they couldn't ignore his, his edict. But again, you know, they feared to oppose him. He had basically gotten rid of Haman. They had all lived in fear of Haman. And because of Mordecai, Haman was dead and deposed. Okay, now let's go on. Next section, 5 through 10. Thus the, Lord, thus the Jews struck all their enemies with a sword, killing and destroying, and they did what they pleased to those who hated them. And in Susa, the capital, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. And, I'll read them, Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adaliah, Eridatha, Parmashta, Erisai, Eridai, and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Jews' enemy, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. I was going through that list. I was looking at Erisai and Eridai. It sounds like twins, <laughs> similar <laughs> names. Um, so the, this passage just tells us the Jews were very successful in uh, destroying their enemies. And so this is really the climax of the story. That, you know, you've got all this turmoil going on, all these little subplots and everything else, and now this is the climax. The Jews destroy all their enemies. Um, they were faced with total annihilation, but we see God's sovereign working, and now they are destroying their enemies. Now it's got the phrase in here, it says, they did what they pleased. And this, this does not refer to atrocities and brutalities. Um, the, the phrase means they did what they wanted to do and what they planned to do. And that was to kill their enemies. Um, and not really go on beyond that. Now the commentaries are kind of split on whether the Jews only killed those who attacked them. It was solely in self-defense versus the idea that they went out and looked for those who were their enemies and had been per, uh, persecuting them. And, and based on what 
I think we see throughout the, the rest of the book, I think that latter idea makes more sense. That they knew who was their enemies, they knew who was going to persecute them, and they uh, uh, killed them as well. Now, one of the things we do, uh, we see throughout this chapter is they, they kill and destroy. They kill and destroy. Why do we have two terms here? Um, killing is easy to understand. You know, you're dead. Well, what does it mean to destroy them? And that word has more to do with tearing down something and leaving it in ruins. Let's go back to Exodus chapter 10. And we'll look at just one example of this word. Exodus chapter 10. Would someone like to read verse 7 for us? Okay, Egypt is ruined or destroyed. That's our same term. Egypt is destroyed. Egypt loses all its power, all its influence. So I think what it means here is they, they go after their enemies. They not only kill the individuals, but they destroy the whole concept of anti-Semitism. They, they destroy their influence. So you get rid of the, uh, their ability of their enemies to return and harm them. Now it tells us that in, just in Susa alone they, they kill 500 men. And then we have uh, the 10 sons of Haman were killed that day. Now one of the things that it mentions is that they did not lay their hands on the plunder. And we have that also in the end of verse 15 and the end of verse 16. So we have it three times. So something is emphasized here. Now let's go back to chapter 8 and look at verse 11. This is Mordecai's edict. If you look at the last line, it says, and to plunder their spoil. So the edict that Mordecai sent out included plundering. But we're told over and over again they did not plunder. So what's going on here? Um, and the commentaries all had basically the same answer. They said, you look at the history of the Jews, God basically said, I'll turn your enemies over to you. You can kill them, but you do not plunder. You're not in it for the money. Let's look at some examples. Let's go all the way back to Genesis 14. It starts with Abraham. This is when uh, Kedoliomer, the ruler of uh, Elam, had, had seized Sodom and take, taken all the people away, including Lot, Abraham's nephew. And Abraham went after him and captured them and freed Lot. So Genesis chapter 14, verses 21 through 24. Someone read that for us. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and have taken an oath, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to unearth 
at school and mom Ray let them have their share. Okay. So Abram was saying, it is God who blesses me, not you, king. You know, I'm not going to take any of the spoil. Um, let's turn next to Joshua chapter 6. This is a rather famous story of Achan after Jericho. Joshua chapter 6. Someone like to read verses 18 and 19. But you, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing of dis for destruction and bring trouble upon you. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasure of the Lord. Okay, so people do not get to take the spoils from Jericho. God claimed that for himself. And then... Uh, Finally, let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 15. Now this involves something we've looked at before where um, King Saul uh, killed the Amalekites. Now remember, um, the, the Amalekites king was Agag, and we're told in the book of Esther that Haman was an Agagite. So he may have been a descendant of the Amalekites. And so we went back to look at this, that the two, the Amalekites and the Jews had been enemies for centuries. So, um, but let's look at uh, 1 Samuel 15. Someone like to read verse 17 through 19 for us. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, you did, not, did you not become the head of the tribe of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Okay. So this was, you know, God wanted their enemies, his enemies, wiped out. But he, he says it's wrong. It was evil in my eyes for you to rush on the spoil. So we've got these historical instances where the Jews did not go after the plunder. God specifically told them not to. And so even though the decree uh, allowed that, I think what, uh, what the commentaries have all mentioned, and I agree with them, is that they had this history that God says, no, <laughs> I'll give you your enemies. You can destroy them, but the spoil is mine. I will make you wealthy. I will bless you. You don't get it from killing your enemies. And so they, they did not do that. Um, now, again, we can contrast this with what they did with what Haman had planned. Uh, his edict included killing the women and children. Well, the, the Jewish women and children were of no threat to Haman. You know, he just wanted them annihilated, wiped out. He also planned on taking their spoils. Remember, he was going to give 10,000 talents of silver to the king. That's one of the reasons the king agreed with his plot, um, and he was going to keep the rest for himself. So he was going to enrich himself and kill those who were defenseless. So even though there's an awful lot of bloodshed going on here, um, it's still a lot different than what Haman had, had planned. 
Okay, well, we're not going to get to those big numbers of slain people today because we're out of time. <laughs> we'll have to start here next week. So, um, Brian, would you like to close in prayer for us today? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the way you watch over your people and bless them. And please be with Robert in this next hour to come and may his message be clear and our minds and hearts be open to receive his message and what you have to say through it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.